Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. This week, NASA reveals its first pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope. While it will grab the headlines, we will talk about another satellite. This one will better help us do a better job forecasting. We talked to Tim Schmidt, NOAA Research Satellite Meteorologist, to fill us in on a new weather-observing satellite providing the most advanced technology that was launched earlier this year. This one will help us better prepare for weather on Earth and even track space weather. Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez with that story. Plus, every individual with a childish sense of humor has always laughed at the pronunciation of the planet Uranus. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't help it. Meteorologist Erica Delgado gets to the bottom of the story. See what I did there? That's coming up next. And of course, a fill fact with a celestial food twist. All that on whether or not. When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the chief works right here. Seven's chief meteorologist, Phil Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years. As soon as we get information, we bring it to you instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma, he guided us safely through them all. That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier. NASA has put a great tool in space to be a set of eyes. Looking down on us, Vivian Gonzalez with the latest. Meteorologists like myself bring you forecasts every day, and NOAA GO satellites are the key factor in delivering the most accurate predictions. NOAA and NASA have launched a new weather-observing satellite, NOAA GOES-T, the third of its kind. GOES-T will not only help us prepare for weather on Earth, it will track space weather too. Here to tell us more about it is Tim Schmidt, NOAA Research Satellite Meteorologist in Madison, Wisconsin. He has dedicated his career to scientific support of multiple goals missions, starting with GO7. It's an honor to have you join us. Good morning. Good morning. Exciting day. It is an exciting day, and I appreciate your time. I know you're going to be very busy today with interviews. Uh, it's, my, it's my pleasure. So uh, NOAA and NASA have launched an important Earth-observing satellite. Can you tell us about the GOES-T satellite. GOES-T satellite is very exciting. It's the third in this series of advanced satellites, the first two being GOES-16 and GOES-17. Right now it goes east and, and goes west. So this you know, keeps on this mission continuity with these advanced instruments. Ultimately, it'll go out of the Pacific region and uh, give us that important upstream weather. And can you explain why geostationary orbit is important and how the GOES mission is going to help viewers get accurate and even life-saving weather information? So first GOES, Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite. Geostationary talks about the orbit. So it's that, that special spot above the equator that rotates at the same rate as the Earth. So it can take these constant images every one minute, even every 30 seconds of hurricanes looking at those mesoscales. So geostationary, operational, 24 by seven, 365. Environmental, we usually call them weather satellites, but they do a lot more than that. And of course, satellites for, for the satellites, but it'll you know 
give you a better idea of what's happening right now so we can get a better idea of what's going to happen in, in the future. And we will also get incredible images, whether they're good and bad images, like the evolution and the life cycle of a hurricane as well, correct? Correct. So that's the beauty of the advanced imager. You get to see this big picture, a hemispheric view. Um, for example, every 10 minutes, a full disk, but you also get these mesoscale views, say, of a hurricane. So you can see the, you know, the waves forming, coming, you know, the convection, the, you know, the looking at the mass and the wind field coming together, it can estimate the strength of a hurricane and get a better idea then of its track and intensity. Now, in recent years, we have seen quite a few environmental hazards across the globe, including the impressive pressure wave from that volcanic eruption that happened in Tonga and the wildfires in the Western United States. Can you tell us how GOES-T will help us when those type of events take place? Yep, GOES is really unique. Like I say, it's, it's the hovering above the sentinel in the sky. So again, watch for these rapidly changing phenomena. So when you have something like a volcano goes off in an ash plume, you know, the satellite is the first that can see that and warn aviation to get better aviation uh, safety. But uh, we can also see turbulence or see signatures associated with turbulence. Again, keep uh, aircraft uh, safer and away from those areas. But then again, look at mesoscale areas, be it, you know, fires rapidly changing the smoke for air quality and health. And this could obviously protect lives and property as well, even tell first responders exactly where that fire is happening and where they need to go. Yep. We like to say we can offer support just before, during, and after. So before knowing where it's going to be dry, knowing where the, the winds are kicking up, seeing that initial fire, seeing the, the plume, and then afterwards knowing where there was maybe a burn scar that may be associated with uh, uh, flash flooding and some other times. Now, Ghost T is going to observe more than just the weather here on Earth. It's also going to monitor space weather. Can you tell us more about space weather and why it's so important to monitor it? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the GOES team will also have a number of instruments to monitor the space at the satellite and an image that, uh, that looks at the sun and gives us frequent images there. So, for example, we can monitor solar flares and corona mass ejections. And when those interact with the Earth's magnetic sphere, that can affect things like GPS, uh, you know, or even the, the power grid. So uh, Earth celestial weather is important, but uh, so is space weather. And uh, the NOAA's GOES T satellite doesn't both. Now, this GOES fleet is definitely a workhorse, and it has a lot of capabilities. What are some of the most surprising things to you that GOES can do? And what are you really most excited about? So, I mean, first of all, just the quality of this beautiful imagery when you look at it, time or evolution, even be it a water vapor image to see the whole, uh, you know, um, hemisphere when we put GOES east and west together. Now we're seeing from the coast of New Zealand to the coast of Africa. So, um, the beautiful large scale, but also looking in at, like I say, a mesoscale vortices in a hurricane as it, you know, uh, moves, mo moves across. There's just uh, the, the, the whole gamut is very exciting.
Now, other than helping meteorologists, who else and what industries will ghost yeah. help when it comes to safety? Yeah. So I like to say there are two kinds of users of the ghost tea data, people who know it, they use it, know it, and people that use it indirectly and may not know it. So ghost tea, Western hemisphere, um, you know, they'll give us our upstream weather. The farther you want to forecast out in time, the further back you have to look at where your weather, weather is coming from. So this information is put into numerical models so we get better forecasts of what, you know, what is going to happen. And again, you know, looking, being able to look at rapidly changing phenomena or, you know, fog or hurricanes, et cetera. So um, there are just a lot of ways that people will be uh, safer because of the goes. And what about lightning safety? Yep. So uh, there are two main earth viewing instruments. There's this advanced imager, but there's also a geostationary lightning mapper. And that gives you total lightning. So the optical scanner looks to... Uh, see if there's changes. And so, for example, you can not only see where the convection is, which is important, but you can also see how it's changing over time. And there's some ideas that as that rapidly changes, you know, that can be associated with subsequent severe weather. So what's really important is this in combination where you have the image, advanced imager working in conjunction with this lightning mapper. So in essence, you can technically forecast or predict when lightning is going to develop and where. Yes. In fact, there's a, a research project right now called Lightning Cast. It takes, uh, and it'll be, tell you the probability in the next hour of lightning over a certain spot. So that's pretty impressive. Where can viewers go to learn more about GOES-T? So on social media, go to NOAA Satellites, or on the web, go to noaa.gov slash GOES-T. And on a side note, because I was curious to know, I know that you are very well involved in the community, not only doing the science, but you're also teaching this new technology. Can anyone in this field like myself as a meteorologist have access to this training? Yep. A lot of the training is online. Uh, you know, go to the, you know, the, the website I mentioned. So there's, there's training of how to use this. There's always new products coming out as well, so it's good good to keep up. Yeah, I've been fortunate to be able to be part of this GOES-R program back starting in 1999 to help uh, about some of the spectral bands that were on the, the ABI. And so then I got to go around and tell people how exciting and how good the imagery was. Then we saw the first images, and there was even more beautiful than I thought it was going to be. This is so exciting, a new advanced satellite technology that's going to help us with our weather forecast, but also protect lives and property. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your interest in Ghost Tea and Go Ghost Tea. Thank you, Vivian. Whether or not, we'll be right back. Severe weather can strike any time. And when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the Storm Station 7 News. We now turn our attention from the Earth to space. Deep space. Talking about a planet that gets no respect. Meteorologist Erica Delgado has the story. Think about the planet we live on. Earth. Its orbital tilt. Its revolution around the sun our atmosphere's chemical composition, 
all of this so easy to picture because, after all, we live on Earth. Now try to imagine the other planets in our solar system. Some, like Earth, are referred to as terrestrial planets due to their rocky surfaces. But some of our outer planets are very different, often referred to as gas giants, while others are referred to as ice giants. These more unknown outer planets are of great interest and much curiosity, their distance from Earth often too far for in-depth exploration. So I thought it would be fun to take a trip through space and talk about one of the ice giants that are part of our solar system. I had the opportunity to speak with an expert in the field that will clear up many questions we might have about one of these ice giants that's more than 1.5 billion miles from Earth. Take a listen. And joining me today with a closer look at our solar system is world-renowned astrophysicist and professor at Florida International University's College of Arts and Sciences and the director of the Stalker Astroscience Center, Dr. James Webb. Dr. Webb, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Before we begin, uh, many questions on the pronunciation of the all-important planet that we'll be discussing today. Some pronounce it Uranus, while others say Uranus. Can you confirm which is the correct pronunciation? Both and neither. So basically, people use them interchangeably. So you can't go wrong using either one of them. Okay. Only one picture sounds like that. So I, I try to call it Uranus because, uh, you know. <laughs> Agreed. But Uranus, you know. We'll stick to Uranus then. Tell us a little bit about the, how the planet was found and how it got its name. This is one of the only planets that was uh, discovered accidentally. It actually been known that something was up there for a long time because its brightness is just, just so that it's visible without a telescope. But it's so tiny and so faint, like the very limit of what you could see back in the uh, second century BC, that they were they listed it as a star. Position was noted, but they didn't know it was a planet. But they didn't know it existed. Unfortunately for us, light pollution now prevents us from seeing that faint. So that's one of the things that uh, light pollution around on Earth has robbed us of our ability to see planets like Uranus without a telescope. It wasn't until um, later on, about 1781, that they finally determined it was a planet. So for a good chunk of time, it was, um, they thought it was a star, and then they considered it a planet. Now, how does the size of Uranus compare to other planets in our solar system? Saturn and Jupiter are much bigger. It's about the same size as Neptune, but it's about eight times the size of the Earth. Eight it's times the size of Earth? Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Now, I was reading a little bit about Uranus and how it's a little different as far as its rotation within a day and, and the orbit around the sun. How does that compare to Earth? Well, it's an ellipse around the sun, just like all the other planets, but it's much further out. It's uh, basically its summa major axis is about close to 20 astronomical units. One astronomical unit is 93 million miles distance between the Earth and the sun, so it's about 20 times further away from the sun than the Earth is. So it's very far away. And it uh, orbits around an ellipse nearly the same plane as the Earth's orbit, so that's not special. Rotation is special, though. It's the only planet that's actually knocked on its side. Instead of rotating with its axis perpendicular to the orbital plane, it's tipped 90 degrees over, so it's rotating in the orbital plane. It only takes 17 hours to rotate once, so it's much faster than the Earth, even though it's much bigger. And it's the only planet that rotates that way. We don't know how it got that way. The idea is it probably was hit by some other object and knocked over in the early years of the solar system, but we don't really know how it got that way. So just to kind of put it, to give a visual to our listeners, it probably looks maybe like a bouncing ball just kind of rolling around because it's on its uh, side. Think of a top, you know, the little top sheet for Christmas, you pull the string, 
rotates around, you set it down in the you set it down on the floor and it points straight up. And then it loses rotation, it falls over on the side, right? Right. What happened to Uranus? It fell over its side. It's still rotating, but it fell over on its side. That's a lot clearer. So we know Earth's atmosphere, anyone that's studied Earth, it's composed mostly of nitrogen and of course oxygen being the second element. Now talk to us a little bit about the chemical composition of Uranus. A little different from Saturn and Jupiter. Saturn and Jupiter are primarily hydrogen and helium, but Uranus and Neptune both uh, primarily methane as um, ammonia and uh, some other gases. Also has hydrogen and helium, in it. but the uh, methane is what's interesting. What about the weather in Uranus? Does the planet have weather systems the way we see them here in Earth? Well, it has weather systems because it has upper upper atmosphere is uh, gaseous form, and uh, most of the planet is icy. It's called an icy giant, not a gas giant. But the upper atmosphere is definitely has really high wind speeds, something like uh, 900 miles an hour or something like that. One question I, I get when discussing a solar system and other planets is, you know, people always talk about in Uranus it rains diamonds there. Have you heard that before? Yeah, I've heard that before. That's because the methane under, so as you go under the gaseous surface or that outer atmosphere, start getting into this really icy and hot and um, high, highly pressurized situation. Breaks the methane up into hydrogen and, and carbon, and that carbon is then forced together. Of course, you know, diamonds are formed by carbon under extreme pressure and temperatures here on Earth. And so that's what these conditions are present in the atmosphere of both uh, Neptune and Uranus. So they think that diamonds might form. Once they become conglomerated together, they're now heavy, and so they fall down deeper into the, into the mantle. And then they get broken apart by the extreme pressure, and then the methane goes, or the carbon goes back up, reforms into diamonds again. This is a theory. We don't know this for a fact, but uh, laboratory experiments prove that this process is possible. It's possible as probably is going on in there. But don't look at it as a get-rich scheme, uh, scheme because there's so much temperature and pressure in there, you can't go in there and bring the diamonds out. <laughs> It'd be impossible. <laughs> right. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, in 1986, NASA sent a space mission. It was the Voyager 2. Um, it was the first and only attempt to this day to actually visit Uranus that, well, that I know of. The spacecraft came within about 50,000 miles of the planet's cloud tops. Why do you think there have been no other attempts made so far? Well, because it's not as interesting as the other planets, because the other Jupiter and Saturn are much more interesting because they're gaseous giants. They have really nice moon systems, which might have uh, moons that are capable of sustaining life at some point. Uranus and Neptune don't. In fact, Voyager 2 wasn't even planned to go to Neptune. I don't know if you know the story about that. No, I don't. It was first launched to study the outer planets, uh, Jupiter and Saturn, and then go out of the solar system. But as after it was launched, an engineer figured out that the planets are just space so that one little course change can actually fly by both Uranus and Neptune. So on the fly, literally, they uh, changed the course and they got to fly by both of those planets and take some images. But since then, we haven't, they didn't prove interesting enough to send another follow-up mission. No, we recently sent New Horizons to Pluto, so uh, that's the last solar system mission that went out that far. But now we've just been observing uh, Uranus and Neptune with big telescopes. I'm sure the James Webb Space Telescope will look at it in infrared once it gets going. So we'll get some better data, but there's no, I, don't think, I don't know of any plans to send another mission there. It's just not interesting enough for what we're interested in. We talked about the moons of Saturn, and you mentioned that Uranus just really, there's none that could really harbor life. Now, with all of the 27 moons that Uranus has, there aren't any signs of any of these moons able to harbor life? Correct. They're not big enough, and they're mainly ISIS. And uh, 
Hydrogen atmosphere is like some of the Saturn's moons, Titan. So it's just um, that's life as we know it, of course. It could harbor some other type of life that we don't understand, but life as we know it requires certain conditions. We don't think any of those conditions are present on those moons, so it would be basically a waste of money. And do you know of any resources um, that maybe they could have picked up when they did the flyby on Uranus orbits? Um, that on, on their moons that could be beneficial to us on Earth? I'm sorry, if there were any resources on any of its moons that could be beneficial to us here on Earth. As far as minerals and stuff like that, it's much easier to find in the asteroid belt, which is much closer. So now those are mainly ices, like water ice and um, methane ice and stuff like that. Plenty of that other wouldn't really be worth it. Now, is the planet ever visible from Earth with the naked eye? If so, when? It used to be before light pollution. Don't get me started on light pollution because that's another thing of mine. We destroyed the night sky just out of waste and stupid stupidity. There's no reason why we can't still have nice sky and still have safe lighting, but we choose not to do that. And so I've been trying to work with our university to fix the lighting on campus to make the sky friendly. So used to, we, you could look up in the sky and actually see these units. You can't do it now because of light pollution. Now, do you think that's everywhere in the States, or do you think bigger cities, obviously, like South Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, uh, with more light pollution? Because when you're driving through the Everglades... Yeah, Everglades, maybe, some places you could, but it would be iffy there, because I've been out to the Everglades to look and still see the haze of Miami. And the point I want to light, would like to make to your audience is that haze is not safety, that's pollution, that's useless light, it's shining up. Safe light points downward, illuminates places we walk, and we have material. This is light that's just badly pointed, pointed upward, illuminating the sky. It's a waste of light. Increased carbon footprint, waste money, and destroys our sky for us. We could fix all that if we chose to, so it's another one of my missions to try yeah. to fix light. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I feel like light pollution is possibly, probably not one of those areas that is uh, really discussed too often. It's important to get that word out there. And with the energy crisis the way it is, you know, energy, any energy we could save would be more profitable using it other places, the carbon footprint, you know. So tell your neighbors to point your lights down, not out the side because most of that light's gathered up. Point it down toward the property. I have neighbors pointing lights right in our windows from across the street, which is ridiculous. But it's hard to get people to understand light is only useful if it's pointed where it's supposed to go. It's not useful if it's pointed up in the sky. Yeah, and, and, ex and excess of light as well. I feel like uh, many of yeah. us may use too much lighting just for one area alone. Well, the new LEDs are much too too bright, much brighter than they need to be. In fact, they do something your eyes call it. Basically, they change your, you have light adaptation. Your eyes naturally close down when you see bright light. So you get a bright LED headlight, your eyes close down, now you can't see anything else in the darkness. But if you don't get, you still are, are light adapted, your eyes are much wider open. You can see much better in lower light levels. Eyes are remar remarkable instruments, instruments if you let them work where they're supposed to. We don't do that. Again, that's another topic. I know. I know. Absolutely. No, but it is interesting as well. And it's, again, it's something to definitely put the word out and just kind of make people known or aware of, of, of what light pollution actually does. It's not just provide light for what you're trying to see, but it does pollute everything around us. All of this is so far away, but also fascinating. Dr. Webb, the Southern Weather Team would like to thank, of course, Florida International University, but most importantly, you, Dr. Webb, for taking the time to educate us on our expansive solar system, uh, something that's so far away and, and so fascinating that it's unfortunate that it's so far away and maybe we couldn't have more access to it. But we do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Anytime. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Erica. 
The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station 7 News. And now, here's a Phil fact. The dwarf planet Haumea orbits the sun beyond Neptune and has rings that are similar to Jupiter. But what makes this object even more interesting is that it's shaped like a potato. Coming up next week. We should worry a little bit about um, submarine landslides. It caught us by surprise, an earthly phenomena that shook the world. Can it happen again? That's all coming up in our next edition of Whether or Not, which drops July 19th. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsvn.com. This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane, with technical support by Stephen Sejas. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.